Uh, let's pray before we study Second Chronicles 7. Father, thank you so very much for the Word of God. Lord, uh, just to be able, Lord, to come in, in so many ways with an unguarded heart, just to receive from you, to stand upon, Lord, uh, the sure foundation of the Word. Lord, to hear from you so that you might teach us. Lord, is uh, just so, it, it, I guess freeing would be a good word to describe it. Father, we so very much appreciate that you love us, that you care for us, Lord, that you want good things for us, that you want to grow us, challenge us, stretch us, Lord, that your uh, great desire is that we would be transformed into the image of Christ, Lord, from the inside out. And so, Lord, we ask for uh, your word as it goes forth this morning that you would teach us and that you would bless, Lord, your word, you would anoint it. Father, we pray for the courage to respond as you might lead. And we believe that this is a prayer according uh, to your name. So we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, uh, as we come to Second Chronicles chapter 7, we've been looking at the building of a temple. From the start of the book of Second Chronicles, this temple has uh, been the desire and the heart of Solomon. And so Solomon's been busy gathering the necessary materials that he's going to, and they've been building the temple. It took them seven years to build the temple, we learned uh, somewhere at the beginning of chapter 5 that he finished this. And now Solomon is at this place where he prays this prayer of dedication. He's going to say, Lord, would you bless this place? That's one part of the prayer. And then the second part of the prayer is, would you keep your covenant with my father David? That's the two aspects of what he lifted up in chapter 5 and in chapter 6. We have his prayer uh, summarized, I guess you might say, in chapter 6, verse 18. It says, Solomon says, Will God indeed dwell upon the earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest of heavens can't contain you, much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be opened day and night toward this house. This idea of, Lord, bless this place. Now, I sort of took a page from your favorite TV show. And you know how your favorite TV show, it'll work hard, it'll get you so engrossed, and you are there, and then it'll say, we'll see you next season. You know, and you're like, come on, tell me how it ends. Did J.R. Ewing die? Or something like that, for those of you that remember that show. Uh, and so I just got to know, it's a cliffhanger. Well, th- I left you with sort of a cliffhanger. Solomon there cries out this prayer to God, and I left you, if you will, with silence for a week. Did God answer? Did God hear? Was God interested in what Solomon had to say? And I'm sure all week you worried. Not sure, wondering. And so uh, today we're going to answer that question. And as we move into Second Chronicles chapter 7, let's read verses 1 through 3. And as we look at this chapter, we'll discover whether or not God heard the prayer of Solomon. Verse 1 says, Now as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven, and it consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the the Lord's house. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and they worshiped and they gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. The verse begins as soon as Solomon had finished his prayer. Now, many of us, we finish our prayers with a word like amen or something like that. And You know, we kind of open our eyes and wonder if anything happened or something. And Solomon here and the people that were gathered with Solomon, they had no doubt that the Lord had heard his prayer. So he says, amen, and fire 
comes down from heaven, it says, and it consumes the sacrifice. Look at verse 2. It says, Now the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. This building, as grand and as wonderful and as ornate and as amazing as it was, was just a building until this point. Because at this point, the glory of the Lord had filled that place and transformed it from a great building to the very house of the Lord. Now, we have a number of examples in the scripture where fire comes down from heaven and consumes a sacrifice. So when you see that, when you're reading that in different places in the scripture where fire comes down from heaven and consumes a sacrifice, that speaks of two things. One, it speaks that God has acknowledged that an offering has been made. And then it speaks of his acceptance of that offering. And so when Solomon is praying this prayer and the fire comes down that God has heard Solomon's prayer and he has accepted Solomon's prayer. We have some examples of this in the scripture. In the book of Leviticus, where Moses, speaking to his brother under the direction of God, anoints Aaron, his brother, to be the high priest of the nation of Israel. In Leviticus chapter 9-7, Moses says to Aaron, bring the offering of the people to make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. And then the passage goes on, Aaron does that, he brings the offering, and there in chapter 9, verse 24, it says, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. And it goes on from there. The Lord had heard Aaron's prayer and he had responded to it with the fire. We have another example in Judges chapter 6. Now you remember the judges were sort of the precursors to the kings. And they served in that book that we call the book of Judges there. And one of those was a man by the name of Gideon, a leader of the people, sort of a military leader, spiritual leader, also a political leader. And Gideon had doubts about whether God got the right person. You know, God said to him, I want you to be one of the judges of the nations. And he was sort of like, I don't think you meant me. And he doubted that. And so he put out this little test and he, he had these little sacrifices, one of me and one of these cakes. And he put this little sacrifice on this flat rock somewhere And he said to the Lord, you know, answer. And then it says in chapter 6, verse 21, it says that the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand, and he touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock, and it consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. The Lord had heard and acknowledged Gideon. But maybe the best-known example of fire coming down from heaven and where God acknowledged a particular sacrifice took place in 1 Kings chapter 18. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story. That's the story where Elijah the prophet encounters 850 prophets of the false gods. Now, Elijah was specifically a prophet to the northern tribes of Israel. And sadly, what had happened amongst the northern tribes as well as the southern, but more so among the northern tribes, is that they adopted uh, all sorts of false idolatry and idol worship of other gods from the neighboring nations. And there, uh, um, Elijah gathers the people together and he said, you know what, today... A decision is going to be made. In the nation of Israel, are we going to follow the true God or are we going to continue to run after these false gods? But a decision needs to be made. He says in verse 21, he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, serve him. If these others be gods, then serve them. But you can't serve both. You've got to pick. And so he decides to set up a parameter, a test of sorts, if you will. And he says to the people, he says, bring two bulls here, two of these ox." Uh, oxen that are going to come and they're going to gather. Give one to the 850 prophets of Baal and give one to me. So it's one against 850. And as I said before, it was an unfair fight because Elijah has God on his side and they don't have a God on their side. So it was an unfair fight uh, to Elijah's advantage there. And it says in the scripture that the 
prophets of Baal and Asherah, they begin to cry out to God. All the day, it says. In one place it says uh, that they, it's verse 26 of chapter 18, it says they took the bull and they prepared it. They called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. O Baal, answer us. O Baal, answer us. From morning, morning until noon. As you read the passage, it goes on to say they continued to do that to the time of the oblations, which is a sacrifice that took place in the late afternoon. So all a day, they're calling out, O Baal, answer us. O Baal, answer us. It tells us that they are jumping through the fire. Uh, limping around the altar can be translated jumping through the fire, which we read about in verse 27. It tells us in verse 28 that they begin to cut themselves, so much so that the blood begins to gush out, hoping that that will get their God's attention. But he never answers them. And look at verses 26 and 29. It says, but there was no voice, and no one answered because no one listened. The entire day, crying out to their God to come and to uh, acknowledge their sacrifice with fire, but it never happened. And then I think Elijah says, okay, are you done? Have you done everything you possibly can do? You don't want any more time. You're done? And they said, we're done. And Elijah says, all right, then it's my turn. And he said, everybody come near. You can imagine if they were doing this all day, the people kind of wandered away from the hill. He said, everybody come, gather around. Everybody gathers around. He takes the 12 stones that represent the 12 tribes of Israel and he sets them up in an altar of form there, uh, resets them up again there. And he takes uh, a shovel, he gets his friends, takes a shovel and he digs a big trench all around this pit. And he says to some of the servant boys there, he says, go get a bunch of jars of water and fill this trench up with water. And they go and they do it. He says, do it again, do it again, do it again. They do it a number of times so that the water is spilling out over the edge uh, of this uh, trench that is made around this altar and you can imagine water and fire you know if you want to start a fire you don't you know bog it down with a whole bunch of water there and he says do all of these things because elijah was going to demonstrate god was going to demonstrate ultimately through elijah that this wasn't some magic trick this wasn't some like fancy hocus pocus thing but he was dispelling all doubt and elijah knew that if god can't start a fire having to do with some water thing well then he's not really a god at all and so they fill up this trench with this water here, and he lays down this ox there, and he says this prayer here. This is chapter 18, verse 36. He says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known this day that you are a God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you have turned their, heart back, their hearts back. And verse 38 says that the fire of the Lord fell and it consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And just the same way that the Lord acknowledged the sacrifice of Aaron with the fire or he acknowledged the sacrifice of Gideon or in our passage, this offering, this sacrifice of Solomon, the Lord had heard the prayer of Isaiah, or excuse me, Elijah and he answered with fire. So we have examples of the Lord acknowledging and accepting sacrifices and doing that with falling fire from heaven. We also have examples of the scripture, not just of the fire falling, but the fire sort of residing in a particular place and that representing the presence of the Lord, which we also see is going to take place here in the temple. So when Moses encountered God for that first time, the scripture says as he's wandering around with his sheep, he was a shepherd, he's wandering around with them, he encounters a bush that was on fire, and yet it was not consumed. And as hopefully it would do in your life as well, that interested him. And so he turns to it, and he looks at it, and he discovers that in that burning bush was the presence of God as the voice of the Lord spoke to him. 
You have the example of the children of Israel as they're wandering through the wilderness. They're being led by that same Moses out of slavery, wandering through the wilderness there. And the scripture says that it was a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, which represented the presence of the Lord that led them. And when the fire moved, they moved. The cloud moved, they moved, and so on. And so here we have this example of the fire falling from heaven and residing in this place. Interesting, the place that it is residing is the place that is called the temple. And the word the temple comes from a word where we get the word Shekinah. Interesting, because the word Shekinah comes from a Hebrew word which has to do with this idea of dwelling place. So whether we're talking about the light, which is what the word Shekinah usually refers to, or the temple, both of them come from the same root word, which, a word which means the dwelling place. Now, in my family, we have a little saying, at least my wife and I, my kids aren't in, as involved uh, anymore with this. They, I don't even know if they know what we're talking about, dear. But my wife and I, we have a saying. We have a particular room in our house. It's our dining room area. Uh, and in the morning in particular, particularly during this time of year, the sunlight just comes blaring in the three windows. And the way that the light comes in and it kind of reflects off of the, the wood table we have there or the wood floor that we have in there, it is just like, shining glory and so we would walk in and we say oh shekinah kind of thing and my wife and i we know what we're talking about the kids think we're peculiar but we know now shekinah refers to that glorious light and it also refers to the dwelling place of god and it's that shekinah glory that came and dwelt as a result if you will of solomon's prayer of dedication and the lord's response he made his presence to dwell in this house he heard his prayer and he has accepted. Now, notice the response of this falling fire from God, of the people, verse 3. Now, when all the people saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement, and they worshiped God, and they gave him thanks, and they said, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the second time that they uttered those words. The first time was at the beginning of the dedication, in chapter 5 verse 13 same words the words come from a prayer of solomon excuse me um, of david in the psalms psalm 136 david wrote and if you you want to look there someday you can see again and again it is repeated almost in every verse of the chapter and it says give thanks to the lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever and so it's that psalm that these people are singing and they're praying and it's the cry of their heart that god is good his steadfast love endures forever now as you move on to verse five excuse me verse four it says that the king and the people begin to offer more sacrifices remember back in chapter five verse six they offered so many sacrifices it says that it could not be numbered here we are given a number of these additional sacrifices so verse four through six it reads then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the lord king solomon offered twenty-two thousand oxen 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people, they dedicated the house of God. And the priests stood at their post, the Levites at their post with the instruments for music to the Lord that King David had made for giving thanks to the Lord. Why? Because his steadfast love endures forever. And whenever David offered praises by their ministry opposite them, the priests sounded trumpets and all of Israel stood. So the first sacrifice was a sacrifice so great that it was without number. This one, we are given numbers, which seem pretty staggering to me, so great that I don't think I would have counted that high. 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. So many taking place all at once here during this feast 
that it says that additional altars had to be built in order to accommodate all these sacrifices. Look at verse 7. It says, Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord, for there he offered the burnt offering and the fat of the peace offerings because the bronze altar Solomon had made could not hold the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat. Now remember, as you would come into the temple, there's a building, but then there's also a courtyard in front of the building. That courtyard is considered just as much a part of the building as the rooms that are inside of the building. And just in front of the entranceway into the building in the courtyard was that bronze altar that we talked about. About seven and a half feet high, about 30 feet wide, 30 feet the other direction. So this big square bronze altar where all of these sacrifices were taking place. And it it seems as if, if I understand sort of the timing correctly, that sort of at the beginning of the feast, they brought all of these offerings and laid them on the bronze altar. That offering, that bronze offering that you have there, that is an offering of dedication, as we've said before. That is an offering where you come in and you say, all right, first things first, I am a sinner and you are a holy God, and so we got to start right there. God, I have really nothing to offer you, but I bring you this sacrifice in faith. So the offering on the the bronze altar was an offering that acknowledged our total depravity and our total dependency on God. That's what took place on those first days, if you will, of the feast, the offerings without number. Here now, why 22,000 more oxen? Why another 120,000 sheep? This is not the bronze altar offering. We have now transformed them. We've moved to what is called in our passage the peace offerings. Some of your versions might say the thank offerings. And I've seen other versions that call it the fellowship offerings. I sort of like the term fellowship offerings because it it kind of explains a little bit more. Even peace offerings here after I give you the explanation. Because the offering that took place on the bronze altar, that was to deal with my separation between me and God. My sin. My sin problem. S-I-N, no S on the end. Okay? This particular offering here is not trying to establish a relationship with God. He's already accepted that offering. This particular offering, which we call the peace offering or the fellowship offering, this is an offering designed to demonstrate, Lord, there are still areas of my life which hinder my relationship with you. I'm still going to heaven, but I have a broken relationship with you at times. I go through kind of life and this thing comes up or that thing comes up or I go astray over here or I go astray over there. That's what the purpose of the peace offering is. If you want to translate it to a New Testament concept, it's the idea of coming to God and saying, you know what, Lord, I don't want anything between me and you today. I'm not saying I'm not a believer. I'm saying, but there are things that are going to come this day that are going to distract me in my relationship with you. In some cases, things that may not even necessarily be sin, but they have the effect of distracting me and pulling me astray. So maybe it's you know 20 hours of TV a day. Probably not a good idea. Good chance that your walk with the Lord is going to suffer as a result of sitting in front of the TV for 20 hours. Or maybe it might be the things that you're listening to or the influences that you're allowing yourself to receive. Sometimes I listen to talk radio and I get out of the car if I've been in there a long time and I find like I'm cranky and I'm kind of like complaining about everything. You know, and so sometimes, you know what, just put that off. Oh yeah, you know. Just put that off and and listen to something that will be more edifying to me. You know, I think of the way that Paul describes it in the New Testament. He says, look, all these things are permissible. And he's not talking about, you know, full-blown sin or whatever. But he said, these things are permissible, but they're not necessarily profitable. 
that might have been one of the most important lessons, and I, I say that a lot to you, one of the most important lessons I've learned you know, in my faith, and you're like, come on, man, how many ones can you have? You know, but maybe one of the most important lessons that I learned in my early walk with the Lord is that all things are permissible, but not necessarily all things are profitable. And what that forced me to do was to consider what sort of effect is this going to have on my walk with the Lord and make decisions looking to move forward. And so there's this idea of daily consecrating myself to the Lord. You know, I think of the way that Peter says it in 1 Peter 3, and he says, but in your hearts, regard Christ Jesus the Lord as holy. That means set him apart as holy. Regard him as holy. It's this idea of saying to the Lord, you know what, Lord, I know this isn't necessarily sin, but I don't know if it's really helping me in my relationship with you. And so I bring it to the altar, and I give it to you. You take it. And the Lord will respond. And essentially, that's what they're doing with these 22,000 oxen, these 120,000 sheep. This is the peace offering. And they're saying, Lord, we don't want anything between us and you. Now, as we move on to verse 8, it says, At that time Solomon held the feast for seven days, and all Israel with him. There was a very great assembly from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Egypt. Now, that may mean nothing to you and I, Lebo Hamath to the brook of Egypt. You can imagine where the brook of Egypt is. It's down in the south of Israel. Libahamoth was way, way up in the north of Israel. This kind of a phrase is much like you and I, we might say, well, from sea to shining sea. Ever heard that expression? You know that means from the Atlantic Ocean all the way to the Pacific Ocean. You're talking about the continental United States. So these guys are referring to all of the land of Israel, from north down to south, from top to bottom, Libahamoth to the brook of Egypt. And then it says, on the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly, for they had kept the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast for seven days. Continues, now on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their homes, joyful and glad of heart, for the prosperity that the Lord had granted to David and to Solomon and to Israel and to his people. Now, some interpret this verse uh, to be implying, if you look at verse 9, where it says they kept the dedication uh, of the altar seven days and the feast seven days, they, they read that as, well, then this dedication ceremony took 14 days. That certainly may be the case, seven days for this first altar dedication and seven days more for this next feast. Others say that those two weeks, if you will, that they coincided, it was just one week, uh, all coinciding with the Feast of Tabernacle. I don't know if it really matters necessarily, um, but we do know that the feast ends on the 23rd day of the seventh month, which is the last day, or technically the 22nd is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. So coinciding in one way with the Feast of Tabernacles, it now comes to its conclusion, this dedication ceremony, the thousands and thousands of Israelites that had gathered on the hills of Mount Moriah, participated in all these sacrifices, sang all of the songs uh, that the worship leaders led them in, they now returned to their homes. And again, look at the words of verse 10. It says that Solomon sent the people away to their homes, joyful and glad of heart. You know, being in the presence of God has that effect, doesn't it? It does a work in our hearts in such a way where all of a sudden, I, I can't put my finger on it, I can't explain it, but there's a sense of joy and gladness of heart that I leave this particular gathering with. And that's why I think it's so important that we commit ourselves to gathering together with the saints. You know, as the book of Hebrews speaks about, it speaks about in the last days that the people will forsake the gathering together of the saints. And we know that that's a mistake because when we gather together with the saints, we're encouraged, we're blessed because God has choose, chosen, I should say, for his presence to dwell in a special way 
at that church service, at that small group meeting, at that prayer group that you are. And so when we go to those places, it's good for us. I told you earlier, one of the most important things I did, one of the most important things that I have ever done in my walk with the Lord that I think has uh, helped me to grow in my relationship with Him, it was, in, it was sort of my New Year's resolution for 1989. How many of you were not alive in 1989? <laughs> All right, a few of you there were not even alive. This one, very happily. Yeah, good. Um, but at that point, I became a believer in October of 1988. I'd heard the message of the cross. I accepted it for myself. I asked God to forgive me of my sins and, and give me a new heart. And I began to walk with him in October of 1988. But the way it kind of worked, my girlfriend, Robin, she's my wife now, but she was my girlfriend at the time. If she would go to church, I would go to church. If something happened, she couldn't go to church a particular Sunday, then great, I can sleep in. This will be fantastic. You know, this sort of a thing. But there for my New Year's resolution, as the calendar was about to turn to 1989, I determined whether she went to church or not, I was going to go to church every single Sunday that following year. And I'm glad I did, because that's where the Word of God was taught. That's where the fellowship of the saints were. That's where people could look at me and say, how you doing? And they could see into my eyes and know that I've had a week where I was struggling, and they could pray for me, and they could encourage me. Something happens when we gather in the place of the presence of God with the saints of God. He has a way of imbibing us with his joy and a gladness of heart, just like these people as they're leaving. And I think the experience that I'm trying to describe and the experience that these fellows here in Second Chronicles were experiencing is from, uh, David refers to it in Psalm 16. In Psalm 16 he says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Forevermore, I should say. So gather with the saints. Make that personal determination to do so. Now, as we continue to move on in verse 11, the people left... I suspect like a good host, Solomon is saying goodbye to everybody, you know, and the last person left. And then Solomon, he goes home as well. Look at verse 11. It says, Thus he finished the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that he had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or I command the locusts to devour the land, or I send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place, for now I have chosen and I have consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. I love how specific God is in responding to Solomon's prayer. The Lord says, I've heard your prayer. Again, verse 12. And then he goes on to say, I heard what you said about the drought. I heard what you said about the pestilences. I heard what you said about the locusts and things. I was listening to all that you said Solomon. I have to confess that sometimes I don't listen very well. Usually in the morning when I'm getting instructions from my wife as to which kid has to go to which place and at what time with what paraphernalia that he needs to have on with him, that many times sort of, yeah, I gotcha, gotcha, kids somewhere, be there, I got it. And then later in the day I'll call and say, no, who had to go where and when and, and 
And so I don't listen very well sometimes. You know, typically if there's a ball game on, it's important what happens in the third inning with no outs. I got to know, you know, so please don't distract me. And, and I don't listen very well in those instances as well. But isn't it neat to see the Lord that he listens and he can rattle back with specificity everything that Solomon prayed. And so he didn't just hear and say, yeah, I gotcha. Bless this place. Right. No problem. But he heard every word. You know, I appreciate the psalmist. The psalmist in, in Psalm 116, he said, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. He has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him for as long as I live. The Apostle John said in the New Testament, and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Isn't it remarkable to consider that God is honed in on hearing our prayers? You know, we think we do our all church prayer meeting and we gather about 30, 40 people here together and we break up into groups about five or six. So there's five, six different groups that are going on and each of those groups are praying by themselves, if you will. And so this group here is praying about this thing and that group's over there praying about that thing. And isn't it amazing that the Lord can hone in and he can hear what each person is saying. And you know what I also appreciate is that the Lord hears our prayer that we can't even utter out of our mouths. We don't even know the prayer of our heart sometimes. And how do I put words to this thing? But the Lord is able to hear the prayer of our heart or the utterance of our heart. The Lord listens. And he listened to Solomon and he heard what Solomon had to say. And he said, I heard it all, Solomon. And then he reminds Solomon, he said, I'm going to bless this house. And for all time, my face will be toward this particular place. And then he reminds Solomon also, remember Solomon's prayer was two things. Number one, Lord, bless this house. Number two, remember your covenant with my father David. And so then he goes in and he begins to, to, to Solomon. He said, and by the way, regarding that covenant with David, I will remember that covenant. And if you look at verse 17, it says, and as for you, if you walk with me before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. So God, had, if you want to look at this in a positive perspective, he had said to Solomon, look, continue to walk with me and your family will continue to reign upon this throne just like David did. The throne will go on and on and on. But also a part of the Davidic covenant was that if Solomon or Solomon's children or Solomon's great-grandchildren or whatever it may be, if they forsook the Lord, then they would experience the consequences of that. And so the Davidic covenant continues and God reminds Solomon of it. He says, but if you turn aside and you forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you, and you go and you serve other gods and you worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you. And this house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast it out of my sight. And I will make it a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. And at this house which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished. And they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they have abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and he laid hold, and they have laid hold on other gods, and they worship them and they serve them. Therefore, he has brought all of this disaster upon him. There's two aspects to this Davidic covenant. And Solomon, if you guys obey, you'll experience that blessing. If you disobey and you run after the other gods, you're going to experience the consequences of that. 
You know, every one of the circumstances that the Lord described occurred in the history of the nation of Israel, unfortunately. Because whereas David was a man after God's own heart, and whereas Solomon, we pray that, praise this amazing prayer unto the Lord, by the end of Solomon's life, he had gone astray. And he went astray as he chased after the gods of his many foreign wives. Some of you may know that Solomon, I don't know what he's going to do with all these people, but he took to himself essentially 1,000 wives. And those 1,000 women worshipped a 1,000 different gods, it seems. And now Solomon had to find a, a place for each of these women to live. But the children of Israel, and Solomon himself, he could do whatever he wanted, he's the king, but he knew that these people with their false gods, these women with their false gods, they couldn't reside in Jerusalem proper. That's God's city. And so he put them just outside of Jerusalem on another slope there on the outer edge of Jerusalem. And that slope, that hill became known as the Mount of Scandal because that's where all of the altars were set up to all of those false gods that his wives worshipped. And the sad truth is that Solomon himself began to worship those gods as well. He still worshipped the Lord, but he worshipped them as well. God was number one, but they were a close two, three, four, and five. And doesn't the word of God say, have no other gods before me? As long as God is first, right? No, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean put God first and these guys can follow along after. It's don't even bring them into my presence. And Solomon did that. And every one of the kings of Israel did that. And half of the king after Solomon and half of the kings of Judah did that. And they worshipped and served all of these other gods and they brought this idolatry into the nation and they were judged as a result. And God said that they were going to be. He said that the temple was going to be destroyed. Look at verse 21. This house which was exalted, everyone passing by is going to be astonished and said, what has the Lord done to this place? God said that he was going to have the people carried away, led captive. And so verse 19 and 20, it says that I will pluck you from this land that I have given you. And the children of Israel were plucked from that land and first brought into the Assyrian captivity and then into the Babylonian captivity. The Lord had faith, been faithful to his word. Maybe in a way we don't want him to be faithful. But he said that a judgment would come and a judgment came. But as we learned last week, why does God do this? Does he do it because he's mad? Does he do it to get even? Does he do it to punish? Hey, you did something wrong. You've got to get punished now for that. Well, what we learned is that his purpose in his punishment was to bring the people back to repentance. To sort of wake them from their stupor like the prodigal son, come to their senses and realize. And that's what happened to the nation of Israel. As the nation of Israel spent 70 years in a foreign land, in the land of Babylon, there were a few. There were people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There were people like Daniel and others that continued to maintain their faith in this foreign land there. And they cried out to God for his mercy. Interesting here, this particular book, we know that it, is writing about events that occurred around 950 B.C., but it was written around 500 B.C. So about 400 years later, it was actually written. So it's written about events that occurred way over here, but in the meantime, all that time, the children of Israel, they went astray, they fell, they were led captive, they were in a foreign land for 70 years, but now, remember the book of Second Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, they're coming back to the land of Israel. And so they're... they're Better than anyone, they can say, you know what? God is true to his word. God said these things were going to happen, and these things happened. 
we were judged as a result of our sin. But here's an interesting thing. In this particular passage, it doesn't just speak of God being faithful in judging the people, but it also speaks of God being faithful when the people cry out for mercy. God was true to his word as it pertained to this idea of mercy. And so in addition to the judgments that he predicted would come, he also declared he would show mercy. Look again at verse 14. Verse 14 says, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. The children of Israel returned to their land. We have a couple of pictures I want to show you. This was during our recent trip to Israel, and Mark Fuller, who's really gifted with the camera, took them. This particular fellow here with his white wicker chair that we were talking about, uh, this is in front of what is called the Western Wall. And the Western Wall is a holy site. Can we go to that second picture here? It's a holy site to the people of Israel um, where they will gather. This is a small crowd that you can see here. Uh, that'll be filled at certain times of the week or certain times of the year. But they will gather, the priests, or not the priests, but the, the religious Jews will gather at this wall and they will pray. Now when Solomon built his temple, uh, he built a temple that sat on the top of a mountain. And then you have all the slopes. About four or five, or about almost a thousand years later, when Herod modified the Temple Mount area, what Herod did was he brought all sorts of dirt in to flatten out that mountain. And in order to keep all of that dirt there, you had to build big walls here. This particular wall is one of those retaining walls for all of that dirt. It's an exposed wall. We call it the Western Wall. They call it the Western Wall. You may have also heard it called the Wailing Wall. And some people think it's called the Wailing Wall because the people, they go and they pray and they're talking. And so it sounds like a wailing is coming from there. Uh, The better reason probably is because in between the cracks of the rocks, water seeps down and it looks like the wall itself is crying Um, Anyway, but it's commonly referred to as the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. And the Jews, they will go to this particular place. And the reason why they go right here is because just on the other side of this wall is where the temple roughly stood. So this isn't the temple wall. This is the wall that held the ground that the temple stood upon. And it's one of the closest places in, in the world, really, that they could go to to be close to, as close to where God said his presence was going to dwell. And they will go there and they will pray there. The amazing thing is, now I'm looking at two different periods of history, so we have the period when they returned from Babylonian captivity, and then in, they lived there during the time of Jesus and everything, and then in what is called the Diaspora in 70 AD, after the time of Christ, uh, 20, 30 years after Jesus was here upon the earth, as the Romans, who were now in control, turned on the Jewish people, the people fled for their lives, and they went all over the world. That's called the Diaspora. Interesting, the Christian Jews as well, Jews that recognized Christ as the Messiah, they ran for their lives as well, and they brought with them the message of the cross. And so that difficult period of the diaspora actually had the effect of furthering the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But for 2,000 years, 1,900 years, I guess, if you want to be exact, for 1,900 years, the Jewish people lived without a homeland. And those of you that are familiar with history, you know that when a people the Irish, the Italian, the French, or whatever, when a people are taken and they don't have a homeland of their own and they're just dispersed around the world, that they eventually integrate with the rest of the world. And they're, really, they're not a people anymore, or no more, you might say. But the Jewish people, God preserved them as a people. And then after the horrors of World War II, 
And recently we just went to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum. My kids, they're studying uh, World War II at school, and so I've been looking at some of their work and all this stuff. You know the horrors of the way in which the Jewish people were treated. And everything was taken from these people. And families and neighborhoods and communities, which once had 30, 40 people in a particular family, close in, living together, one little kid survived the Holocaust and the concentration camp. And where's that little kid going to go? What is he going to do? Is he going to start over or something like this? And how? And how's a little kid going to do that? And yet God had his hand upon the people. And he brought them back to the land. And this wall was unearthed, little by little. And the people gather there, and they pray, and they cry out to God. And you go to the land of Israel this day, and and many of the people in Israel are what are called atheistic Jews. They're not running after God. They're not in love with God. They're Jewish. That's my culture. But they don't necessarily even believe in God, certainly not practically, where he's every day part of their lives or whatever it may be. But nonetheless, God has a hand on the nation. And as it says in the book of Ezekiel, that he would cry out, these bones, can they live again? Yes, they can live again. And the people would be returned to the land. And I believe they'll never be displaced from the land until the Lord Jesus himself returns. But they can go to that wall and they can cry out to God. Now, God was faithful to the people of Israel. Back in in Chronicles here, I believe he's faithful here. Uh, in in our current century that we live in, or last century as well, to the Jewish people. But he said to them, you can cry out to me for mercy, and you will experience mercy. Look again at verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. If my people, if God's people would in humility be broken. If God's people would forsake wickedness and seek the righteous one. If God's people would pray. You know, a lot of times I look at my life, and and I'm really good at this, comparing my life and the things I do and the decisions I make with others out there. And typically I find the bad people that are out there, quote-unquote, and then I'm I'm doing pretty good. And I, I, you know what, God, man, those people are a mess out there, outside of the church. It's a good thing we got the church because we got it all together here in the church. But you know what I'm reminded of? I'm reminded of Daniel during this time period that we're sort of referring to. When he prayed, he acknowledged his sin for the nation. And he probably didn't do any of those things you know, that he's crying out to God for, to show mercy to the nation of Israel. You know, of, of the people in the Scripture, there's very few people where nothing ill is ever said of that person. Even the great grand people of the scripture, Moses or whatever, we see the mistakes that he made. Nothing ill is said of Daniel. And yet Daniel, when he goes before God on behalf of the nation, he confesses his sin. He includes himself in there. This passage says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and forsake their wickedness, then I will hear their prayer and I will heal their land. You know, rather than me, my tendency is to say, you know what, they're going to get what they they deserve to get in a particular hard day when my heart is a little harder than others. The Lord would have me cry out that his mercy would be shown to those individuals and our nation. 
you know, when you, this prayer, certainly it was specifically written to the nation of Israel, but I think it applies to us as a culture as well. And as we look at our nation and we look at our culture, we are a nation that has drifted from God. And the momentum is picking up steam. Isaiah said in his uh, book, he said, that which is evil will be called good, and that which is good will be called evil. The whole world is going to be turned upside down or whatever. And we certainly, we see that. You know, you, you read your newspaper, you, you turn on the television set, and you think, what is going on? And how rapidly and how swiftly things have seemed to go crazy. And I think you can equate it all, and you can say people are drifting from God, they're drifting from their relationship with God, they've forsaken the Lord, they've run after their false gods. What do you mean false gods? They've run after the gods of self. They've run after the gods. We have run after the gods of pleasure. We've run after the gods of temporal comfort. We've run after the gods of lust in our culture and in our society. And the church has done it too. I have done it too. And we look at our lives and we say, well, I'm better off, I'm doing better than some of the others are. Yes, but we have watered down what it means to know the Lord Jesus. And so people look at our lives and they sort of say, well, some days you seem to be right on the mark. And other days, you sort of seem to pick and choose what it is you're going to obey and follow. I don't get it. I guess I'm not really interested. And we've established this faith that most people don't want, nor should they really have. Because we're not quickly running after the Lord, and we're running after our false gods. And the passage says, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, then I will hear and I will heal. I believe that we are a nation, and some of you are older than, than I am, and you, you kind of live through uh, different things that I did, than I did, I should say. But you've seen a nation where, for the most part, most people were sort of moving in a particular direction, go in a place that, what is going on? And the remedy for that, again, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, if we will repent on behalf of our nation and our culture, the Lord will show forth his mercy. If we will seek his face, turn from our wicked ways, then God will heal and God will forgive. Let's pray. Father, we end on a heavy note. But Lord, you know our hearts, and you know that uh, on our good days there's a desire, Lord, to see your mercy extended uh, to all of the people that we encounter, Lord, whether they're daily encounters, work, family, uh, community, or people we're observing on TV or reading about or whatever, Father, Lord, on those good days our hearts breaks, Lord, we've experienced your grace, your love, your mercy, Lord, we've experienced the joy of being in your presence, the gladness of heart. And Father, it is our desire, Lord, that others would experience that as well. And so, Father, we want to begin like Daniel by acknowledging where we have gone astray. Lord, those areas of compromise in our lives, those decisions that we make, which could be defined as nothing more than hypocritical. And Father, we confess them to you as sin. We acknowledge our sin. And in humility, Lord, we lay ourselves before you and we ask, Lord, would you be faithful to your word? 
And would you show forth your mercy? And would you heal our land? Father, you rescued us, each of us. When we weren't seeking you, you plucked us sort of out of the fire. And Father, we ask that you might do that again to many within our community. Father, we think of Easter coming up and the many that will go to church uh, on that particular day and they will hear the Word of God. Lord, we ask that you would use the Word of God this coming week to open up their eyes to see and believe. Father, we continue to pray for the outreach of Ravi Zacharias we'll be doing. Would you do a great outpouring of your Spirit that day as well? Father, we ask that our lives would be so in accord with you, Lord, that sort of your Spirit would just kind of overflow out of us and be that influence to those that we come in contact with daily. And Lord, like Peter said, that we would always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is found within us with gentleness and respect.